Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, students from all over the state meet in Tallahassee to participate in the Florida History Fair. They conduct historical research using primary and secondary sources, and they express their findings in one of five formats. They can create a performance, a documentary, a historical paper, an exhibit, or a website. We'll go to Fort Myers to visit the winter estates of Thomas Edison and Henry Ford. Edison really was a botanist. He was very much a man who was interested in renewable natural resources. And Florida historians study the music of Elvis Presley. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one they picked, the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why if they told you you would cry. So just look at them and sigh And know they love you Each school year, more than 30,000 Florida students participate in history or social studies fairs at the county level. About 850 of them are selected to go to the Florida History Fair in Tallahassee to compete at the state level. 55 students from 16 counties were selected to represent Florida at the 2009 National History Day competition at the University of Maryland College Park. Casey Smith is Curator of Education at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee and the Florida History Fair Coordinator. Smith tells us the history of the History Fair. Florida History Fair began in 1980 under the sponsorship of the Florida Historical Society, which uh, held the competition each year in association with its annual meeting. And about 1986-87, FHS invited the Museum of Florida History to co-partners in sponsorship. And then finally in 1988-89 school year, the Museum of Florida History took over complete administration. That was 20 years ago this year. Each entry in the Florida History Fair is evaluated most heavily on historical quality. The entry's relationship to the theme and clarity of presentation are also considered. Smith says the format for presentation of information and each year's theme is based on national models. Each year National History Day selects a theme and this year's theme, that is to say um, uh, 0809 was the Individual in History Actions and Legacies. Next year it's Innovation in History, Impact and Change. Based on that theme, students select a topic that deals with any place, anywhere, any time in history. They conduct historical research using primary and secondary sources, and they express their findings in one of five formats. They can create a performance, a documentary, a historical paper, an exhibit, or a website. 
Although research papers are an important mainstay of the Florida History Fair, exhibits and performances provide students with creative options. Documentaries are the most popular category for Florida students, with websites being the fastest growing category. Casey Smith says that over the years, she has seen some incredibly innovative work at the Florida History Fair. Some of the exhibits have been really spectacular. We had a young man who did um, uh, an exhibit about the Marielle boat lift, and he had actual pieces of, he had some oars and pieces from a wooden boat that he was able to work into his backboard. Um, the kids exercise incredible creativity. Shortly after Hurricane Ivan, uh, a student from South Florida, the west coast of South Florida, I think Charlotte County, did a, a project that it was communication and history, I think was the theme, and she did a project about journalism, and for her backboard, she found a newspaper dispensing machine, the kind you put you know a dollar in to get your newspaper out of, that had been beat up by the hurricane, and that served as the basis for her uh, exhibit backboard. It was really, really very ingenious. Debbie Rollo teaches at the J.D. Floyd K-8 through grade school at Spring Hill in Hernando County. Rollo says that her students were particularly inspired by this year's History Fair theme, The Individual in History, Actions and Legacies. Well, I think it's extremely important, especially this year where it's individuals that make a difference, uh, not only today, but also affect things in the future and are affecting things that are happening currently. So I think it's extremely important, and I'm very excited to see the enthusiasm and so many people involved in it. It's very exciting. Raphael Pinavalli, an 11th grader at Springstead High School in Hernando County, presented a documentary at the Florida History Fair. Um, I created a documentary on Vladimir Lenin, a leader of the Soviet Union, and I edited it with um, computer, the computer and recorded a narration over it. Um, I chose him because I feel he's a massively underplayed person in history. How he affected history is just intense, and nobody really understands it. I was, it was a project that I had to do for one of my classes, and I figured while I did it, I might as well make it uh, competable at state. Katie Duguid is a 10th grader at Springstead High. She created an exhibit for the Florida History Fair. Well, I did Joan of Arc for my individual in history, and I was trying to portray what a female empowerment figure she is, so I have a lot of pictures on there as well as a fleur-de-lis, which is a symbol of French freedom. Well, I have a lot of pictures of her in battle and in men's clothes, which she's famous for, but then a picture I was actually talking about earlier with the judges was one, it's a poster from World War II and it depicts her and it's sort of women you need to go work in the factories while your men are off at war because you can be strong like Joan of Arc. Really early this morning I talked with judges for about 15 minutes and since then I've just been sitting around wondering what I've gotten. Springstead High School 10th graders Katie Soglowski, Brittany Bolano, and Jennifer Tolini decided to do a group exhibit. Well, we did it on Captain William Kidd, and he was a pirate. He was the only pirate that was ever tried by the House of Commons, so we found that interesting. Well, it looks, it's designed after the pirate ship, so it's cut, so it looks like a pirate ship and it has a mast. Well, we have like windows on it and a sail and mast, and we have like pictures on it just as if a normal board. It's just shaped like pirate ship and painted like one. The girls say it can be a stressful process being evaluated by judges and then waiting for prolonged periods for the results. They came by and they interviewed us about a project and they wanted to ask questions about it and they did and we explained it to them. Yeah, we're waiting around and then tomorrow we find out who makes it to the nationals. 
The team was inspired by their teacher and are hopeful they will win. Well, I think first it was because our teacher gave us extra credit. We did it, but then we decided it's kind of cool, and we actually made it, so we took it seriously. Yeah, that, and it's it's good for like to do extra activities for like colleges and stuff, and it's a good experience. And even if we don't make the nationals, we're gonna do it again next year. Atticus DeProspo is in tenth grade at Bradenton Preparatory Academy in Manatee County. He designed a website for the Florida History Fair. Well, I'm in the senior individual websites, and I created my project on Alice Paul, who's a women's rights activist, and she helped the 19th Amendment get passed. I feel like the internet is becoming more popular with my generation, and so I felt that by creating a website, it would help me to expand my knowledge in technology. And so what I did was is I. S- used a program on my computer called iWeb and it's sort of a step-by-step you have to organize your information and uh, multimedia and various other things to help create the entire website. Um, A month ago I had to send in my website, my process paper, and my bibliography and then today I had an interview with three judges and they can ask you any questions and they just asked me um, about my research how I organized it, what influenced my decision to choose Alice Paul, and what point I was trying to convey. I won't find out till tomorrow if I place first or second um, to go on to nationals, but I'm waiting here with my fellow teammates to see if they made runoffs. Bradenton Prep 8th graders Matthew Barner, Nick Fabray, Shelby Carrillo, Marianne Asai, and Mitchell Cobb teamed up to do a performance. We did a project on John Muir and how he was able to uh, help protect Yosemite Valley and work with uh, President Theodore Roosevelt to kind of instigate a movement to uh, protect lands in America. Well, I went to uh, Yellowstone National Park last summer, and I became interested in how national parks started, and some of my other friends have been to national parks, and they became interested as well, so we wanted to see how it all started. We all take drama at our school, and we're all pretty familiar with the acting. Well, what we do is we have, like, two scenes, one from the present and, like, one from the past, and... We have a little girl and a father, and the father's telling the little girl a bedtime story, and it switches into John Muir and the way, how, how they did that and stuff. It just goes back and forth. Like, the, say the little girl will ask questions, and then the past performance will explain the questions. Now we're just waiting to uh, see if we made the second round of judging called runoffs, and what that does is there were different rooms where people were performing, and they take the best from each room, and then we all compete against each other to... Uh, get a spot to go to nationals. This is our second year doing a performance project, but it's our first year at state and we're all very excited. Seventh grade documentary filmmakers Hannah Hedgecock and Knox Hall also attend Bradenton Prep. The actual category was called the individual in history and we did Eleanor Roosevelt and the human rights. Uh, we wanted to do something on human rights, so we used the search engine, and when we when we searched it, it came, Eleanor Roosevelt came up for the first. So, well, we used um, Adobe Premiere and Final Cut Pro software, and we, we used children's books because they had lots of pictures, and we scanned them and then put them on a flash drive and then put them onto the software. We went through, and we performed at 10 o'clock, and we were the third ones in our room. So, and we've. Ho- We've so far had the best run, hopefully. We didn't see the other ones after us, but we're hoping we make runoffs. Um, hopefully, then we'll go to nationals. Um, last year, I didn't get to state. I made runoffs last year, and I had a really good run. The funny thing was is we thought we ha- I had, was going to win it and stuff, and I didn't, I mean, but I had a really good run. I feel like we've gotten far enough, 
and if we lost, it wouldn't be that much of a deal. We learned how hard Eleanor Roosevelt had to work to get the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights approved, and especially with countries like Russia, where they're communists, and it was really hard for her. Diane Small is History Department Chair at Bradenton Prep and believes the Florida History Fair is a great learning experience for students. Absolutely. And the thing that I like about History Fair isn't just the research process. It's once you have your research, you have so many different modalities to choose to present it. You can do an exhibit, you can do a documentary, you can do a performance, you can write a paper, or you can create a website. My students that have gone on to college have come back to say in their freshman year they were the only ones that knew how to do an annotated bibliography. And the other kids had no idea how to do that because it's a step above a bibliography. When you annotate it, you have to tell the the person, the reader, why that source was important and why you used it in your research. Cuts to education funding in Florida has already had an impact on the Florida History Fair, and coordinator Casey Smith believes that will continue for the foreseeable future. It's probably had a greater impact on the county level. I know that uh, many of the county coordinators who, who have in the past accompanied their delegations to Tallahassee were not able to come this year because of travel restrictions uh, from some counties that uh, used to provide uh, transportation or pay for hotel or at least provide some sort of stipend. The kids are doing this on their own dime this year. Um, at the state level, our budget was cut considerably, but we had the option of going to a very good network of statewide and local resources, and so we were able to make up the shortfall at the, at the state level. I know that some of the people who have been county coordinators in the past next year will not be doing so because they are being taken from their administrative positions and, and, and asked to, to, to rejoin the classroom. So the, there, are, there have been some cutbacks. I, I think that there may be one or two counties that will have a more difficult time participating next year. But, um, you know, it's, it's a growing process. It ebbs and it flows. And I, uh, for all those that we, we lose each year, one or two, we generally can pick up another. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to maintain um, a, a consistent level of participation. It's such an important pro project. It really is the only national and statewide program that allows students to exercise and learn um, in social studies related disciplines. There are lots of opportunities for math, science, reading, writing, competition, but this is it for social studies and as we know social studies has tended to be marginalized since the implementation of the FCAT, but this is a way that students can t and teachers can get around that. Florida history was well represented at the Florida History Fair. Nathan Gupta won first place for his exhibit on Governor Leroy Collins. Lauren Davies and Kendall Frankhauser won first place for their documentary, Bill Lund, Riverkeeper of the Loxahatchee. And Anna Yanakopoulos won first place for her paper on Werner von Braun. Teach your parents well, their children's hell will slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one they picked, the one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they love you 
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to learn what happened on this day in Florida history, search historic photographs, discover new books on Florida history, and much more. Thomas Edison and Henry Ford were two of the most innovative thinkers of the early 20th century. As Janie Gould reports, they were also winter neighbors in Florida. That's Thomas Edison's voice demonstrating one of his numerous inventions, the phonograph. Most people know that he invented the light bulb. During an incredibly productive lifetime, the man who called genius 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration received patents for more than a 1,000 inventions. In 1885, Edison paid $3,000 to buy 14 acres in Fort Myers, and he built his winter estate. It was there that he pursued his interest in plants. At the time, the U.S. imported all of its rubber from Southeast Asia and South America. During World War I, the price skyrocketed. Edison and two friends, Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone, joined forces to find another way to make rubber. Ford later bought the neighboring estate. Clara Schmidt gives tours of the property. Two laboratories are preserved the way they were in Edison's day. The sole purpose of this lab was to find a domestic source of rubber to grow here in the United States. Edison sent teams of men out to find as many promising latex-producing plants. He worked with over 17,000 different plants. He left all of the chemicals, all of the glasswork exactly where it was. While Tori Lawless talks about the lab, Chris Pendleton works on a garden renovation project outside. She's president and CEO of the Edison and Ford Winter Estates. Edison really was a botanist. He was very much a man who was interested in renewable natural resources. What you see on the property are things like bamboo, which he used as the filament for the light bulb. The dominant tree on the property is from the rubber family. Even with electricity, he was always looking for a renewable source, and so in the case of the light Light bulb, it was bamboo, and he was searching for a way that he could grow that bamboo here in this country instead of imported from Japan. Not really any different than today with oil products. One of the oldest structures on the property, the caretaker's cottage, is linked with a well-known Florida name. Mary Kaufman does marketing for the estates. It was owned by Samuel Summerlin. They were famous cattle barons, and it was the son of Jacob Jr. Summerlin who owned this house, Samuel. We're now walking over to Mina's Moonlight Garden and Thomas Edison's little office. This is actually where the first electric laboratory was built in 1885, and this is where he did his work with the bamboo filament to his electric light bulb. When Edison and his wife Mina built their house, they had the lumber shipped in from Maine. The chandeliers that you see above are Edison original electroliers. Those are your first style of chandeliers, and they are all different styles all throughout the houses. We're approaching the Henry Ford estate. And we're about to cross through the Friendship Gate, and this is just symbolic because of the deep friendship that Henry Ford and Thomas Edison had. The estate is also called the Mangoes. I see a statue. That must be Henry Ford, I would guess. Yes. 
Diane and Tony Malone were visiting from Chicago. I got figged. The banyan tree dropped a fig right on me. I feel privileged. Yeah, right on my shirt. I was just absolutely amazed to learn so much about Edison. They were saying that he actually came up with an invention almost every 10 days, and I said, I have trouble just getting my house clean almost every 10 days. The Edison and Ford Winter Estates are on the National Register of Historic Places. They're open to visitors every day except Christmas and Thanksgiving. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Listen to archived editions of the program at myfloridahistory.org. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. You crying all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Crying all the time. The mid 20th century saw the emergence of youth culture and with it rock and roll. Today, rock and its influences are being examined by Florida scholars who are trying to understand a variety of cultural issues. Bill Dudley listened to one Florida academic's personal account of rock's origins. When you look at at the total evolution of rock and roll, it doesn't happen in just this linear line. You have all of these issues, the economic, the cultural, and it probably speaks as well as anything to our civilization from from the 50s uh, on. Jack Crocker is assistant to the president, dean of graduate studies and continual learning, and one of the founders of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers. But one of his hobbies is singing and lecturing about the early years of rock and roll to students and other interested groups. Well, so if you take the blues and you take country, then you get Presley, uh, because Presley, uh, as, a, as a white artist, was much more palatable to a white audience. And, Crocker has first-hand knowledge of the subject. Born on a cotton farm in Mississippi, he grew up listening to radio from nearby Memphis, Tennessee. In addition to country music, he listened to rhythm and blues, as played by Dewey Phillips, a white DJ on a black Memphis radio station. Dewey Phillips was a, a wild character, but he built this, this huge audience of white teenagers 
and he started playing R&B, he was playing soul, he was playing what then was, was going to be rock and roll. Memphis, Tennessee, and we're flat getting right to you. And right now we're going to play the next record again for Thelma, for Murphy, for Annie Mae, for Grandpa, for Johnny L, for Alma Jean, for Elma Jean, for Dorothy Porterfield, and Buzz Cole, I believe it is, and the time I believe I'm going to dust my broom, Elmo Jean. We all listened to Dewey Phillips, but suddenly this thing happened that you connected to, and it was not rebellion per se, but it was this feeling that suddenly there is a voice that represents who I am. Crocker was 15 years old in the summer of 1954 when DJ Phillips began playing at the first commercial recording of fellow Mississippian Elvis Presley. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Mama sold thousands of copies around Memphis before it was even released in July of 1954. Two years later, Elvis was a household name and part of an explosive new youth culture. Why was this amalgamation of white country and black blues so important? Modern historians like University of South Florida's Ray Arsenault see Elvis as a traditional figure akin to Jackie Robinson in the 1940s. They both were important cultural bridges between white and black societies. It's a kind of first stage of, in a cultural sense, of breaking down the isolation of Jim Crow kind of cracks in the mold that younger Southerners, white Southerners in particular we're talking about here, were able to have cultural experiences which they otherwise wouldn't have had. Presley's image and, and his looks and the uninhibited movement got much more response from my parents than from me. What they were seeing was what they considered vulgarity and what I was seeing was this wonderful feeling of a kind of freedom that I had not had before. So I think that's much of what the, the music spoke to. There had been a fear that white children in the South would be Africanized. And this was, of course, part of the opposition to school desegregation. In a sense, we look back now, from their perspective, of course, they had reason to fear that there would be a real cultural change, a kind of Africanization of Southern culture. There are some scholars who have been making this argument that Elvis is an important figure in the history of civil rights. He breaks down some of the cultural barriers b before the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. And the, one of the reasons that they were able to crack through this hard surface of, of Southern white racism and tradition was that there had been kind of cultural shock troops before in terms of Elvis and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. Perhaps Elvis and his music were a kind of watershed in the deep south of Jack Crocker's boyhood, a place where everything had a racial context. To me, his gift was he took the white tradition of country music, he beautifully assimilated the blues and the African-American tradition, and as, as a white artist, made palatable to a much broader audience what was to become that huge generation of rock and rollers out of that conflict of white and black, uh, something that transcended the conflict, and it was the music that came out of that that transcended it. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You ain't nothing but a hand-dog crying all the time. You ain't
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us in person at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa or online at myfloridahistory.org. And be sure to join us here again next week. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.